How far does a person need to fall in order to be beyond the reach of God? It's possible there are some here who feel that's where you are. And you feel that that's how it's always going to be. How far does a person need to fall that God will not and cannot restore them? Well, we have a powerful story and a powerful question that Jesus asks at the end of the Gospel of John that helps us know the answer. And the question is, Peter, do you love me? The Gospel of John is written, as John says himself, these things have been written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that in believing you might find life in his name and begins with this epic analogy. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The, the preexistent one who made all things and then zeroes down to planet Earth. The Word became flesh. And then the rest is all about helping people understand that he was that Word that eternal God who had been made flesh for us. The climax is the cross and the resurrection like the rest of the gospel writers. But the other writers end with Jesus victoriously being called into heaven and giving us our marching orders. Go and spread this good news to everyone everywhere. John ends his gospel entirely different with a personal encounter of redemption. Think about that. He begins with this epic, eternal image. And he ends with Jesus taking the time to restore one person. (laughs) That's how great the story of Christ is, and yet how personal it is. He has that same care for every one of you here today. I love that. Let's explore this story. It's John chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Wouldn't you hate to be the two other disciples? Always the other disciples? You never get, never get your name mentioned. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out on the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. And then he said, have you tried the other side of the boat? So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because... There were so many fish in it. And then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. And when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about a hundred yards from shore. And when they got there, they found breakfast already waiting for them fish cooking over a charcoal fire, and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. And so Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 150 large fish, and yet the net had not torn. Now come 
and have breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. Now this was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. And after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. To really understand why Jesus goes about restoring Peter the way he does, we need to back up all the way to the 13th chapter of John. The night Jesus is about to be arrested before he is crucified. He's sharing with them some of the most important things that any follower of Jesus needs to know. He's also letting them know the next day or two is going to be really hard. In fact, one person is going to betray him and the rest of them will scatter. And this brings up great controversy. They're all debating, well, first of all, who, who, would, who would betray Jesus? Peter is the most vocal of all of them. And he said, I, I love you more than anybody here. In fact, I'm willing to die for you. And Jesus says to him, die for me. Here is the truth, Peter. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. When you take all the Gospels and lay them together, you get a more complete narrative that indicates that this so stuck with Peter that as they leave and they're heading up to Gethsemane, he has another conversation with Jesus. He says, Lord, I, I'm fully devoted. And Jesus repeats this warning. And then, of course, Jesus is arrested. Peter, perhaps out of this sense to prove his devotion, stays close to what's going on. He warms himself by the fire outside of the place where Jesus is being tried. And it's there that these three conversations take place during which three times Peter fails. All of his bluster, fear wins over and he denies that he knows Jesus. And this passage from Matthew, the very last time, let's say it together, Peter swore a curse on me if I am lying. I don't know the man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed. Peter remembered the words of Jesus. He broke down and wept bitterly. I, I think it would be hard to find any failure in Scripture. That's worse than it. He denies his Christ. It brings me back to Christ's words in Luke chapter 9 when he says, whoever is ashamed of me, 
The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in glory. It, it almost sounds like this is the unforgivable thing. That to be ashamed of Christ dooms me. And then, of course, the resurrection. Peter and John run to the empty tomb. It says that when John saw the clothing and the scene, he believed immediately. It does not say that about Peter. In fact, this is worth noting. Peter is absolutely silent in John 20. Not only at the tomb, but in the two encounters that Jesus has with his disciples, first without Thomas and then with Thomas, Peter is silent. It's like he has been totally humbled. I can imagine what he was thinking through this time, the relief that Jesus is alive, the the joy, but yet the embarrassment and the humiliation, the excitement about seeing Jesus, but yet the fear to make eye contact, the bluster and overconfidence is gone. He had failed Jesus in the most significant way, and the change in him is remarkable. And so now we come to John 21. And the story begins with this miraculous provision of God, the the great catch of fish. And I want to note five quick things that we can learn about this miracle that that are worth noting before we move on to the encounter with Peter. The first thing you recognize about this miracle is that it required an act of obedience. Frankly, Jesus saying, have you tried the other side of the boat? It's not exactly something a professional fisherman would think is great advice. And sometimes when God asks us to do something, it it seems irrational, but it did require that act of obedience. Secondly, it involved an abundant provision. The net was too full for them to even pull into the boat. There were so many fish. But along with that provision, third, came the capacity to handle that provision. Think about it, the net didn't break. It should have, but it didn't. And how often have we seen in our journey as a church that when God puts something in front of us that uh, appears miraculous beyond our plans, and, and, and to step into it might seem uh, to lack some wisdom because of our, our lack of resources. When we take that act of obedience, God not only acts supernaturally to provide, but also the capacity to deal with it is there. How many churches and Christians never experience God's miraculous provision because they don't think they're organized well enough to handle it? Or who's gonna do all this? If God is gonna do something, the capacity is going to be there. And that's what we've experienced here. The, the, the blessing of God here isn't necessarily because of incredibly gifted organizers. Although we have a handful of those, most of us are dreamers, but it's because when you step out in obedience, God brings not just the miraculous, he brings the capacity to deal with the miraculous. Think about that. Think about what you might be missing because you don't take that first step of obedience. You talk yourself out of it. Not only that, what we see here is that the miracle reveals who Jesus is. They say, oh, it's the Lord, which is in fact the purpose of all the miracles in the Gospel of John. I've shared these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then finally, as it turns out, the miracle wasn't even necessary because they show up 
And Jesus already has fish on the fire. And what that reminds us of is that the miracle isn't the source of what we need. Jesus is. And so if we're looking for miracles and we're depending on them for our sense of spiritual safety and security, we have it backwards. Jesus said it's a sinful generation that looks for a sign. It's a needy generation. Miracles remind us who it is that we serve and that he's always going to take care of us. That'll preach. It did preach. (laughs) The important thing to note here is Peter's response. It says, when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he jumps in the water. I'm trying to imagine what Peter was thinking at this point. This is now the third time he's he's seen Jesus. And I'm picturing those first two times. You know, he's probably quiet, maybe at the back of the the disciples, you know. And and maybe after that he thought, I wish... I wish I'd had the courage just to come and make things right, to say I'm sorry, to get it straight. And so maybe this time he thought, I'm not going to lose this opportunity. Maybe he jumps in so that he beats the disciples there. He can have this quiet moment with Jesus where he gets it right, but that's not how it plays out. There's no indication that Jesus even acknowledges Peter's presence there. And he orchestrates a group activity. They eat together, and it's after that, in that group, Finally, Jesus focuses on Peter. And he has a conversation with him that the other disciples are witnesses of for reasons we'll explore in a moment. And three times, he has a conversation that goes something like this. When they were finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And more or less the same twice more. Now, I want to observe several important parts of this act of restoration of Peter. The first thing worth noting is the name that Jesus uses. Simon, son of John. As far as we can tell, Jesus had never used his original name because the first time Jesus meets Simon, he gives him the name Peter. It's actually a play on words. Did you know Simon, son of John, conjures the idea of a pebble that can be tossed and kicked around? He's actually playing on that. I'm going to call you Rocky. It's very similar to his play on words when he came across the disciples who were fishing and said, you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. It's worth noting those words. He says, I will make you. It's an invitation to transformation. The fact that at this point, after all this time of being with Jesus, he uses Simon's original name is really saying to him all this time, and that change has yet to happen in you. Which, by the way, is why the fishing Some preachers will make a lot about this idea that Peter at this point says, I'm going fishing, as though he's kind of given up on the mission. I think that's a really bad way of looking at it. Peter was a fisherman. It's what he did. He probably fished during the time he was with Jesus. And remember, this is before Jesus gave them their marching orders. They they had no clue what was going on, but they needed to eat. And so Peter said, I'm going to go fishing. But more important is... The symbolism of that, 
You see, when Jesus first calls Peter, what is he doing? He's fishing. And at the time, he was Simon, son of John. You see the point here? It's like we're, we're still back there. All this time, you're not ready for how I plan to use you. The second thing is the threefold request. Jesus is clearly asking Peter to commit himself to Jesus three times because it was three times that Peter had failed him. And Peter knew it, and I think it was building up. It's why on the third time, that word grieved, that really means that he just broke down. Peter was never broken before the Lord. Peter was the one that tried to correct the Lord at times. I think he felt it coming. When Jesus came around the second time, he went, oh, I know what he's doing here. And the third time, it just breaks down. Jesus is clearly saying, you and I know what happened on that night but I'm willing to give you a chance to make it right. So three times, do you love me? A third thing, I think the thing that really makes this story find its truth is the Greek language. There are multiple words in Greek language for love. And we have one word. And so when we read this, we simply hear love, 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 love. But Jesus, in the first two questions is using a different Greek word than Peter is. Jesus is using the Greek word agapeo, agape love, unconditional love, right? He's asking him if he means more to him than anything else in the whole world. When Peter responds, he uses the more common word phileo, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. It's good love, it's important love, but it's not the ultimate love. And so when you take those into account, this is really more how the conversation went. The first question Jesus asks, Peter, do you really love me absolutely and completely and more than any of the other disciples? When he said, do you love me more than these, he isn't asking him, Peter, do you love me more than you love these other guys? He's going back to the night he was betrayed when Peter stood up and said, I love you more than any of these guys in the room. And he's saying to him now that they both know how miserably he failed. Peter, is that true? Really? Do you really love me more than any of these other guys who are now sitting around this circle? Because they had heard Peter make that declaration. The reason why this happened with the disciples is because Peter had made that declaration within their hearing. And then the second reason I think they're there is because they're going to learn from how Jesus restores Peter because they're gonna have to do that with other sisters and brothers in Christ in the days to come. They're gonna see how restoration takes place. Jesus says, do you love me absolutely and completely? Agapeo, and more than any of the other disciples. Like you declared the night I was arrested. Peter answers humbly, Lord, you know the truth. I love you, but clearly not enough to die for you, like I had said. The second time is similar to the first. Jesus says, Peter, do you, do you love me more than anyone and anything else? Peter says, Lord, you know. You know I love you, but 
It's not that great. It wasn't enough to win over my fears. And then the third time, Jesus changes his language. He comes down to Peter's words and he says, Peter, do you really only love me like your brother? And that's why it says this time Peter was broken emotionally to hear Jesus himself say what they both knew was true and what he could no longer deny about himself. And so Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know the way my heart works and feels. This is a picture of somebody who has been brought to the point where he has come face to face with his greatest brokenness and weakness. And equally remarkable that the depth of that brokenness is not beyond the reach of Jesus' love. And that's the final thing to see is how he restores him. Each time he asks the question, he goes on and and three times he says, feed my lambs, care for my sheep, feed my sheep, Think about the depth of the forgiveness and grace that Jesus offers. Peter had committed the ultimate act of betrayal and spiritual failure. And yet Jesus doesn't simply forgive him. He restores him fully to his ultimate call as he commissions him to pastor the flock. You know, we don't do that with people. When people fall for much lesser things than abandoning Jesus altogether, we restore them. We say, okay, you're forgiven. We'll bring you into fellowship, but don't plan to teach. (laughs) Don't plan to lead. We consign people who have failed in a way that we deem to be extreme failure compared to our own moral failures to second-class status in the body of Christ. Jesus doesn't do that. Peter is the guy for the first chapters of the book of Acts. Hmm. And so as we wrap here, I, I want to go through five statements that have come to my mind that I think God has for you today. The first is, Jesus knows the worst thing about you. And he still loves you. When Peter failed, it didn't surprise Jesus. It surprised Peter. Jesus already knew the darkest thing about Peter. He knows the darkest thing about you. Even the dark stuff that you're not willing to admit there, Jesus knows about it. He doesn't love you any less. Second, Jesus also knows the best about us and is committed to bringing it out and use you for what he's called and gifted you to do. And that leads into the third idea. God can bring out our very best only when we come face to face with our very worst. The reason why many of us never get to be where God can really use us at our very best for him is because we never get really completely honest with who we are. Churches are filled with people who pretend. And and in fact, Christian culture encourages pretending. We can't admit that we've fallen back because we think of spirituality as this linear thing where I'm just constantly moving. That's not life. We take two steps forward. We take a step back. Sometimes we go back to the, the beginning. 
But here's the thing, Jesus can work with it. In fact, when I can truly come face to face with my worst, you know who I find is already there? Jesus. He's there waiting. I remember when I first started coming to terms with some of the deep stuff that I, I struggle with, because we all have issues, we all have brokenness, and trusting this brokenness in me with others. Once I got there, I thought to myself, what was I afraid of? Because right here in this place of complete honesty, grace abounds. And Christ can now take me and finally reshape me to be at my very best. And that reminds us that there is no failure, there is no failure from which God cannot and will not restore us. I don't care where you are, how far you have fallen, Christ's love is there and restoration is possible. And that leads us to the last thing. I think this story reveals to us that there's one ultimate qualification for God to use us. And that is that we love him more than anyone or anything else. The same question he asked Peter, he asked you. Here's the qualification. Love me more than anything else. I can use you. I will use you. Here's how it works. When I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, all my other loves get fixed. They don't compete for that love, but they're perfected in that love. I love my kids better. I love my wife better. I love my neighbors better. I love refugees better. I love the orphans better. I love them more because I love God most. That's what Peter did. He fell deeply and completely in love with the shepherd of the flock and so he could love the sheep. Yeah, let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. What a gift that after this incredible story of Jesus and his act of love on the cross and his victory over sin and death in the resurrection, it all comes down to touching a life. And the same thing you've done with Peter, you've done with countless millions of others, and you still are doing today. And I pray for those here who feel they've fallen too far in some way in their belief and faith or in their choices. I pray that they will experience you right there with them in this moment, offering grace and restoration. In Jesus' name, amen.